um, bring a knife to a gunfight, right? You, um, you basically choose your based on the, opponent, the weapons of your opponent, isn't that correct? So if I knew someone was going to attack me with sticks and stones, I might not bring a tank, right? A missile launcher. I might not do that. I might bring a gun, you know, because I'm not, a, I'm not too good in a knife fight, in case any of you want to know that. You know, so like I, if it, but like the, the situation would call for different ways of how we might arm ourselves. Isn't that true? Um, so our police, for example, usually aren't walking down the road with machine guns, things like this. So we consider the danger, we consider the opponents, and we consider how is it that I'm going to defend myself. Isn't that true? I was in high school back in the day when they had high school many years ago, um, but when I was in high school, many of us participated uh, in an elective class, and I don't see him here this morning, but um, my buddy Chris and I were tasked to debate each other. You ever had to debate someone in some kind of logic thing, type of thing, right? So in high school, we were taking this elective that were teaching us how to make logical arguments and how to enter in debates um, when you have conflicting ideas. So me and Chris were assigned this uh, task to debate the issue of abortion. And I was given the, the pro-life side, and he was given the pro-choice side. And for me, honestly, it was kind of easy because it was in a Christian school, and everyone was already kind of siding with my position anyway. So I didn't really have to do too good a job at debating. Um, but anyway, we, we were tasked to this end. So what did we have to arm ourselves with? Logic, right? Knowledge. We had to kn know what the other person might say, and how will I respond to it? What is my defense? So we arm ourselves in different ways and on different occasions, depending on what's happening um, in the situation. We need to arm ourselves. In, in that situation, not obviously with guns or grenades, but knowledge and reason and logic. Now the Bible, for Christians, frequently tells us that we have a foe that we have an enemy, that there is a conflict, and that we need to be ready, we need to be prepared for that foe when it attacks. It is a daily battle that the Bible calls a wrestling match. Did you know this? I know we got some wrestlers in the room too. Wrestling is personal. It is sweaty. <laughs> it is too close to any other person that I ever want to be with, okay? <laughs> That's what wrestling is, right? It's intimate, it's intimate. You intertangle, and it's just not a place I ever want to be in, personally. But the Bible calls, the Bible calls our, our struggle with Satan a wrestling match. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't call it like two snipers trying to take each other out. It's a wrestling match. He's there. You can smell his breath. That's what it's like. So we have to arm ourselves, the Bible says, against these spiritual foes. You know that you have three in Scripture? That there are three enemies of the Christian. One I just mentioned, Satan, who, by the way, is a liar. He is an accuser. He is a tempter. And, is, and he is a destroyer. So when you become a Christian, you have a new enemy. He is Satan, and he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your friendships. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. That's what dev the devil does. And he'll lie to you. Over, he'll accuse you. 
He'll say, he'll make claims that you're worthless, that you remain in your sin, that the, the death of Christ is not enough. Right? These are the accusations that Satan makes. He lies to us and he tempts us. That's Satan that we wrestle with. But there's also the world. Now, this one can be a little tricky. I'm not saying that squirrels are our enemy. Right? I'm not saying that the oceans are our enemy. Right? I'm not saying even that people are our enemy. That is much more of a hostile posture the Bible takes than that. But there is a system of unbelief and rebellion towards God in the world that is our enemy. And it's that system, that philosophy, that worldview that will undermine your faith in Jesus Christ that's the enemy. Does that make sense? But there's also a, a more sinister, a more personal type of enemy, and the Bible calls this the flesh. And this is you. This is what lives in you. You see, you don't need Satan to tempt you all the time because we can tempt ourselves pretty well, can't we? Right? We have a flesh, the part of us that even as Christians, even though we are conquerors, we are one with Christ, we have a flesh that remains that the Bible describes as a sinful nature. The old man, the first Adam that remains. So here we are, as, as Christians, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we have some enemies. And they are not on vacation. They don't take days off. And we can see this very clearly happen, happening in the life, you remember, of Elijah. Elijah just kicked some major pro false prophet butt. Do you remember this story? There was famine in the land, not famine in the land, there was drought in the land, there was no water, so he challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. Remember this? He say, you call on your gods, and I'll call on mine. And if they bring fire down on your altar, then your God will be the true God. But if my God brings fire down on my altar, then my God is the true God. So they start hemming and hawing and doing all this work of cutting themselves and crying out to their false God. Nothing happens. Crickets. Now it's Elijah's turn. He prays a prayer, and immediately fire consumes the altar and licks up the water that he poured on that same altar. And that same day, God wipes out all the prophets of Baal. You know that the next day, maybe even the same day, I forget, because of all this, Jezebel threatens Elijah's life, and he is terrified. He, how is he terrified after witnessing this? Well, can I ask you the same question? How can we be terrified after we've been so faithfully delivered by the f power of God time and time again, yet we still shrink back in fear and turn back to some old sin that has been part of us following us? How can we do it? You see, we, we can cluck our tongues at Elijah, but don't we do the same? It's because we have enemies that never take a day off. They never take a break, and they're after your soul. They're after your hearts. They're after your devotion. So the Christian is in conflict with these foes. One is supernatural, that's Satan. One is external, that's the world. And one is internal, and that's your flesh. All of these three enemies have the same objective. They want your heart. They want your devotion. They want you to believe that something else is God besides God. Because if they can do that, you'll worship something else and you'll run mayhem throughout your entire life. 
you'll turn your back on your wife, on your friends, on your church. You'll do everything that it will take to get that God happy. See, that's what happens. So we're at a war, friends. The spiritual life is a war. It's a battle against these three foes. They're not after your house. They're not after your job, right? They're after your worship. They're after your heart, your devotion. They're not trying to remove you from some political position or your place of authority. They want your guts. You see what I mean? Your passion, your affection. What are you most deeply affectionate for, passionate? That's what they want. Anything but God will do. Anything but God will do. You see, friend, you were made for that purpose, to have a deep affection and passion and love for Jesus and for God. You see, the trick is that God, that, that Satan, our enemy, turns our eyes away from him so that we look on someone else, something else, to deliver us when only God can do that. You know why you're so hot for people? Why you're so passionate for that job? Why you're so unhappy until you get X, Y, or Z? It's because all of that passion is meant to be satisfied in your creator, but you've misdirected it. You see, we need to open our eyes, arm ourselves with an attitude, and look to Christ. So we engage in this conflict with the supernatural, external, and internal by arming ourselves. The Christian life is all and only about the heart, and it's what your enemy targets. That's why the Proverbs say, what does it say? Above all else, guard your hearts. Above all else, guard your heart, for in it flows the wellsprings of life. It's why I believe Peter, right in our text, says, arm yourselves with this attitude, pointing to the heart. He doesn't say arm yourselves with guns or knives. He says, arm yourselves with an attitude, with a way of thinking, with a correction of thought, with a heart and an affection. That's what Peter says here. Arm yourselves with this. There's an attitude then. Every single, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there is an attitude that we need to fight for because Satan's after it. Our flesh is after it. The world is after it. It's what derails you. It's what derails me. So if you're a Christian, we need to arm ourselves with this attitude. Well, what is that attitude? Good question. I'm glad you asked. It is the attitude of two things, and this is what I see in this scripture here. Crucifixion and resurrection. We need to have an attitude of crucifixion and an attitude of resurrection. Let's talk about what this means. It's kind of weird to talk like that, isn't it? We need to have an attitude of crucifixion. What on earth is this talking about? Well, let's try to explain this. The first attitude a Christian must arm themselves with is the attitude of crucifixion. And I believe that this attitude of cruci crucifixion is twofold. The crucifixion of Jesus and our co-crucifixion with him by faith. And I'll explain that as we go. But let's look first at Christ's crucifixion. The attitude of cru crucifixion is having the attitude of Christ's crucifixion. Therefore, in our text, it says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with that same attitude. What attitude did Christ have when he suffered in the body? That's the attitude that we should share with Christ because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Christ's bodily suffering 
is a reference to his crucifixion. It's a reference to when he died for sins on the cross. Our attitude then should be armed with the reality that Christ was crucified. You say, okay, I know that already. Big deal. Let's explain it because this is amazing. Okay? Our attitude should be armed with the reality that Christ has been crucified. Well, why was he crucified? Let's start to think about this. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He, didn't, he wasn't just murdered, although he was murdered. It wasn't a tragic tale of injustice, though it was that. He wasn't even serving us as an example of like how to live our lives, like stick to your guns and follow you know, what you believe and even if you have to die for it. That's not why Jesus died. The Bible is very clear that the reason Jesus died was to once and for all satisfy the payment of sin that we deserved. That's why he died. He died as a redemption. He paid the price for our sin. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that means that the crucifixion settles your accounts. So what is the attitude of the crucifixion? It stands in the victory of innocence. In other words, if I am in Christ, I am not guilty. I'm innocent. Oh, isn't that fantastic? Because I am guilty. I'm guilty of a lot. But I'm not guilty because Jesus paid for it. It's been paid for. A debt I could never pay. That means that as a Christian, though I am convicted over sin, I am never guilty of sin. Because it's been paid. Isn't that incredible? You are free, friend. If you've failed, you are free to stand up and go and sin no more because there's no condemnation. On you. That's the attitude of the crucified life. Christ crucified means that you are forgiven. And if you don't feel forgiven, it doesn't matter because you are. If you don't think that you're forgiven, it doesn't matter because you are. If you put faith in Christ, if you trusted in the work of Christ on your behalf, it doesn't matter how you feel or what you think. You are forgiven in Christ. It is an objective reality. So Jesus announced to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. You see, our holiness is a consequence of the gracious deliverance of condemnation in Christ. We are free from condemnation, therefore we live in holiness, not vice versa. We don't get freed from condemnation because we go and sin no more. It's the opposite. See what I'm saying? By grace you have been saved through faith. That's what the crucifixion of Christ does for you. It puts you in a new situation, a crucified attitude. Remember 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also sinned once, or excuse me, for Christ suffered once. How many times did he suffer? Once. Not twice. Not when we take communion this morning. Not when you get baptized. Not when you feel sorry for your sin. Christ suffered once for your sin. That means that everything that we do, all acts of devotion to Jesus Christ, our worship, they are not efficacious. Do you, know, do you see the difference? Efficacious means that I'm paying for my sin. You see, my works of devotion are not efficacious. They're worship. Only Jesus crucifixion was efficacious powerful to forgive christ 
suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus the righteous, to bring you to God, he is put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ once and for all, excuse me, Christ once and for all died as a sacrifice, did away with the problem of sin. The work needed to be completed is resolved. Can we just kind of stop for a moment and glory in that? You failed. You've hurt someone. Maybe you had an abortion, and now you're starting to realize what you've done. Maybe you left your wife or your husband, and it's sinking in the evil of it, the wickedness of it. Oh, but friend, do you know that when you come to the altar, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you as having never done it. Wow. Isn't that incredible? He sees me. Oh, the seeming injustice. Who gets, someone's got to pay for that, right? You can't just get away with stuff. Well, friend, someone did pay for it. You see, God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous in his forgiving you. Somebody did pay for it. A brutal death. A horrific injustice. We put Jesus on the cross because of our sin. And we get his righteousness. So when you, come to, when you really come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is an incredible sorrow and a great joy at the same time. Sorrow because we know what we did to others and to Jesus, but joy in what, in, in what we know he did for us. Isn't that incredible? Christ died once and for all to free us from the power of the condemning sins that we've committed, but also to free to free us from being controlled by sin. You see, friends, in Christ, if you have died with Christ, if Christ indeed has died for sin, that means that not only is your sin forgiven, but you can have victory right now over it. It doesn't need to control you. We'll get to that more in a second. The crucifixion reveals to us the problem of sin and the need to be freed from it, and that freeing work has been accomplished for you. Oh, you should be more excited than you are. I can see your faces. You look very sorry and very sad. Let, this is incredible what God has done for you and for us. No other work needs to be done but trust in Christ. No other work needs to be done to conquer your sin that separates you from God but to trust in Christ. The attitude of the cross of Christ is not self-reliance. It's trust. It's leaning on the power of what Jesus did for us at the cross. Amen? The attitude of the cross is trust in Jesus. Faithing, to have faith in the work of the crucifixion because of who was crucified. Now what about our crucifixion? Let's talk about this. As a result, verse 2, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. When you come to faith in Christ, a shift happens that we'll talk more about later. You shift from not desiring what you formerly desired, what the Bible calls here evil human desires, but rather you have a new affection and your will is aimed at the will of God. This is what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. Why would a Christian do this? Why would a Christian turn from their old way and pursue a new one? 
pursue the will of God? Well, at its root, it's because if you've put faith in Christ, the reality of your new life is that your old self is crucified with Christ. It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean you aren't tempted to sin anymore. But the reality is that your old self is crucified. You are not a slave to it anymore. Listen to what Romans chapter 6 says. It articulates this. For we know that our old self was crucified. What's that? The flesh. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free. So here's the equation. Put faith in Jesus Christ. You are, you are co-crucified with Christ. You are died to sin. You are set free from it. It means that you are no longer a slave to it. You don't have to follow it. That's powerful and sobering at the same time. Because that means if we do follow it, we didn't have to. Right? We could have chosen not to. We could have been inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit and prayer and his word, but we chose not to. So as Christians, when we sin, it's not as slaves to sin. It is a conscious choice. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. There's that attitude. Count yourselves, reckon yourself, arm yourself with this attitude that you are dead to sin. Friends, if you are in Christ, that is your position. That is your reality. You say, I don't feel like that. Well, it's the same thing as before. If you don't feel like your sins are forgiven, it doesn't matter what we feel like. That is who we are. So reckon yourself dead to sin. Believe that the will of God is better than the old way. Reckon yourself dead to sin. The believer's new attitude that we should defend our hearts, the, the believer's new attitude that we should defend our hearts with, that we should arm ourselves with, is that, is that we are counted dead to sin. We are no lo- How are we dead to sin? Well, we're no lo- longer guilty of it, like I just said, and we're no longer slaves to it. There are two things that happen at Christ's crucifixion that when you put faith in, you are co-crucified with him. That is, you are declared innocent and you are set free. Isn't that incredible? Walk in the power of that freedom, church. Walk in it. Delight in it. Have a vision of it and go for it. Amen? Now, we, that doesn't mean we can't resist sin or resist the Holy Spirit or God's will. If that were the case, we wouldn't be warned here to not let sin reign in our bodies, right? If, the, if it wasn't possible, then there wouldn't be a warning to not let sin reign. But the Bible says, reckon yourself dead to sin. Don't allow it. Mortify it. Crucify it. The, walk in the reality of the crucifixion and your co-crucifixion with Christ. You are not your old person. That is just an echo of who you used to be. So walk in the newness of life. Turn from it and trust that Christ is better. Christ's death ended the sin problem and your faith in him does the same thing. Amen? Oh, do you believe that this morning? Or has Satan, who is the liar, tricked you? Because it's true. It's in the word of God. 
you know, unless you don't think God is, this is God's word, then we have another conversation. But if it is, then do we believe it or not? Do we believe Satan or do we believe God's word? Because God has said, you're free. You're not a slave. You are forgiven. Walk in the newness of life. That's what he says. And you can. You say, well, I'm too old for that. I've gone on sinning too much. Okay, let's go back, let's go back to the elementary thing again. Who is a liar? Satan. That's a lie, so who told it to you? Satan. You're believing Satan. Do, okay, go home with this. One principle. Don't believe Satan. He doesn't like you. Okay? Don't believe him. Believe God. Put your I, I have trouble believing God. Okay. Strengthen your faith in God through the word and prayer. That's the, that's the Bible's prescription to strengthening faith. Prayer and the word. I'm going to challenge you with something. It's not just the word. It's prayer and the word. If you don't pray, you can read the Bible till you're blue in the face and it won't do anything for you. You need to pray. You need to pray the word that you read. That you read. Because otherwise, it's not a relationship anymore. You're not talking to God. You're not intimate with God. And that's the power of it. Okay? Christ's death ended the problem of sin. If you're a believer in Christ, you are free from it. Walk in the newness of life. When Christ died to sin, we died to sin. Satan, the liar, the accuser, the destroyer, the tempter, is doing everything that he can to trick you. He might lie to you. And tell you that Jesus didn't really solve the problem of your sin. He might be lying to you right now. Even though, even though the Bible clearly says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. For you have been justified in Romans 5 by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not your blood. The blood of Christ. You know, every time we take communion, we say, It should be your blood in this cup, but it wasn't. It was Jesus's. Right? It was Christ's, not yours. Do you believe that? Do you believe the word? Then walk in it. Walk in the power of it. So he's going to lie to you and tell you Jesus didn't solve the problem of your guilt, but he does. You don't remain guilty, friends. The crucified attitude counters these lies that Satan is telling you every day and wants to trick you with. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Oh, isn't that, I mean, it's right there. The death, Jesus died. He died to sin one time, 2,000 years ago, at the cross. For all, that is for everyone who believes on him. Walk in the newness of life, friends. It's gone. You can do it. Not because you can do it, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? You're new. So let's look at the next attitude. That's the crucifixion attitude. And here's the resurrection one. We kind of talked about it a little bit already, but let's talk about it more. Being found in Christ by faith, because he lives, I live. You say, I feel dead. I feel lost. I feel sorry. I feel like I'm a slave. You're not. You are alive. You are alive, friend. The believer is now alive. You want life? Real life? Come to Christ, because he resurrected from the dead. His, his sin, not his sin, but sin could not keep him in the grave, right? Friends, he, he is alive from the dead, and if you, if you feel like you're the walking dead, well, come to Christ and be alive. 
Be alive. Come get it. The believer is alive because he is alive. That's the promise of the resurrected life. You're not dead. You're not worthless. You matter. You mean something in Christ. You are important to his kingdom. You wouldn't be alive from the dead if you weren't. That's who you are. That's your identity. The believer, having died to sin, is alive to God. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. Because you're alive in Christ, the resurrected attitude leads you to following not evil human desires, but the will of God. Something happens when we are given the resurrected life of Christ. We are given a new affection. We wanted this, but now we want that. Isn't that true? Oh, and friend, if you're living in unrepentant sin, can I ask you, are you alive? Are you? Because when Christ gives you life, you recognize the bankruptcy of, of turning from his will, which is good for you, and the death that it produces. Friends, <clears throat> you might say, I don't feel alive, but it doesn't matter. You are. You need to arm yourself with it. The believer's former desire to prove and shape himself through sin and idolatry is replaced with a new desire, the will of God. That's the new resurrected life. You see... We don't follow Jesus or his will to boast in how great we are and look how moral I am. It's not simply to dress you up in some kind of moral clothes and be proud of ourselves and how good we are. The Christian doesn't aim to follow the will of God so that he can gain life. We follow the will of God because we have life. And we know that in it is life. The law of the Lord, if you read the Old Testament so often, the law of the Lord is like gold. It's like water. It's life to my bones. You see, it's not killing us. It's not a buzz kill. It's not annoying. It's not an annoying chore that we have to do because we're Christians. It gives us life. It helps us thrive and gives us joy. The new life that is to characterize our attitude, this resurrection attitude, the resurrected life, can be described, I think, in three ways. And the first way is that it's gracious. It's gracious. God gives you life, not because you deserve it, but because he decided to give it to you as a gift. Isn't that great? You don't owe him anything. If I give you a gift this morning, here's $100, Jade. Right? Here you go. It's a gift. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Pastor Kyle. 100 bucks. Yeah, but you, can you come to my house now and mow my lawn for the next three months? But, oh, but it's a gift. That's not a gift anymore. I am paying an employee, right? She's got to work for it. See, a gift is given without strings attached, right? It's given freely or it's not a gift at all. See, the, the life that Jesus gives, he gives to you freely. You don't work for it. You don't earn it, but it changes you because he gives you life. He's giving you something new. It changes you. The gift was free, but you don't stay the same, you see? Because what he's giving us is a new heart, a new desire. But that initial resurrection that you participated in was a free gift of God given to him by his grace. And because it's gracious, 
we should never wonder if it depends on our resolve to be holy or even like Christ. It was a gift. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have new life. It doesn't say we too might have our old life. New life. Resurrected life. For we have been united in him, with him, in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The new life that God provides the moment you have faith in Jesus Christ means that you are no longer slaves to sin. Your life forbids it. Your new life forbids it because you're slaves to God. You have a new master. This life is your permanent possession because it was won for you and it will not be taken from you. Isn't that great? That's what the word of God teaches us. If anyone is in Christ, let's, let's talk about that verse again just for a moment. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, I am brand new. Old things is gone. They're gone. They're past. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The old is gone. The new has come. And it's not just the dark, dirty things that you did in your past. Something new has come. You're new. You're a new person with a new affection and a new hope. Something that you work for. It's different. You don't have to sleep with more guys to think that you're loved. It's gone. That's done. That's the old way. You don't even need to get married or have children. You don't need that stuff. You see, God is your all in all. He provides you all that you are in Christ. Everything that you always wanted to be, you get from him. He loves you. He calls you his child. You're his father. Maybe your father was a big jerk and he was an abusive dad. But you know what? You got the right one this time because he loves you. See, everything that you've ever been after, you say, I want to be powerful. Well, good, good, because in Christ, you will rule the nations. You're going to be way more powerful. Oh, the president, he thinks he's powerful. Well, he gets to rule America. That's pretty cool for a little while. But you know what the Bible says about you? That you'll sit at the right hand of Jesus Christ and rule the nations, all of them, with him. Wow. That's who you are. You say, I can't even tie my shoes. And that's who I, yep, that's who you are. That's why I I get Velcro on my shoes. That's who you are in Christ, friend. You are loved, you are beautiful, you are powerful, you are strong. And it's not because that's who you are, because you made that yourself. It's because Christ has decreed it to you. Because Christ was beautiful and strong and powerful. And he imputes to you, by faith, everything that he is. Everything that you couldn't measure up to and couldn't be by yourself, you are now because of him. Isn't that great? That's your new life. The the contingency of that new life, though, is to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, how do you get in Christ? How do you, how do you not be outside of Christ? As the Bible is clear that so many people are. How do, how do you get from outside to inside? Well, that's very simple. Praise God by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Simply say, I can't, 
I can't make myself this great. I'm separate from God. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. But Jesus did it for me. And I'm going to trust it. I'm going to take the leap. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to lean on him. And if that's you, friend, that's, that's the Bible's antidote to the problem. That's how we get inside. In Christ, we're free from it. He gives us a new life. All the guilt is gone, and he's become our new affection. Declared innocent instead of guilty. The Bible's answer simply is to trust in the work of Jesus and not your own. And enter into the new life. Enter into the new life. The Bible's answer is very simple. The attitude that we need to arm ourselves with then is that we indeed have life, not because we feel like it or because we're good enough, but because Christ did it and he was good enough. Amen? If this new life is a present reality, it is indeed new. It's not the same as it was before. You see, how do we know we've put faith in Jesus Christ? Well, because we're different. We're new. He changes us. We have eyes for him. You ever have eyes for someone in your life? When I was in high school, it was a different person every six months. (laughs) We had eyes for a person. You know, as you grow, that's kind of silly, and we laugh. But that can happen when you get old, right? You know, you, you you age, and you get married, and... You, ha- you had eyes for your wife, but life happens. You get sick of each other, right? I'm not sick of my wife. I love my wife. Okay? I'm not co- this is not a confession, okay? But doesn't this, <laughs> doesn't this happen, though? Like, th- right? We start, you know, if, if I had married that person, I'd be happy. We start thinking like that. You know, you know why you think like that? Because Satan's lied to you. He's lied to you. We think, I married the wrong person. If I married the right person, I'd be happy. <clears throat> lie. It's a lie. That is not true. You know that, I don't know why I'm going off on a tangent here, but you know why God um, has us get married to people, to, to our wife, our wives or our husbands? It's not for us, it's for them. He calls us to love them. Not for what, how they make me feel or how they treat me or what they do. I'm not saying God, there is an escape clause. Right? So I get that. Right? There's, there's abusive situations, and the Bible even acknowledges that. But just the, 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 the regular struggles of normal marriage, we get sick of those things after a while, and we start get, ticking each other off, and eventually we, go, we grow bitter. But you know, the Bible teaches us, if, married, if, if, if the marriage is what the Bible is, it says that, that we get married to love the other person, not to love ourselves. That's just the reality of it. And you know what happens? You say, well, I've lost my affection. I don't feel it anymore. Well, this is my challenge. Love the other person. Do it long enough, and you'll feel it again. You will. That's the truth. You want to, you wanna, <laughs> you, friends, I've seen it so many times where people think that that's true, and they leave, and they forsake everything, and they just end up right back where they were before. It's just got a new face to it. Where was I? Okay. Christ won it for us. He provides for for us this gift. Turn to him, and he gives us this new life. If if this new life is a present reality, it is indeed new. That's that's how I got there. Okay. If this new life is a present reality, it is indeed new. You're different. You have new eyes. You have eyes for God. You don't have changing eyes all the time. You have... 
you, when you get distracted, when that does happen, you still have that internal affection to know, i got to put it back. Something's going, I'm getting off track here. There's this inner type of conviction which is given to you by the Holy Spirit. So if you belong to Jesus, even though you might start looking somewhere else, you know internally you shouldn't be, and eventually he gets you back again. Right? This, this is what happens over and over in our lives and into, in, in the characters of Scripture. So there's a turning from. The resurrection life means you're turning from something. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry, all the dark, dirty things that you can think of. Well, I've never done any of those things. What's he talking about? Well, friends, do you realize that he's talking to pagans here? They used to be pagans. And they were doing all of this stuff. But you know, there are other places in Scripture where he's talking to religious folk. And the list of crimes against God is different. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's not something that we spent enough time doing. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's anger, bitterness, and unwillingness to forgive. You see, don't lock yourself into like the dark, dirty list here. Say, I've never done, it. I've done these things. A lot of people in the world have never done these things either. But friend, th these are not the only things that the Bible says used to characterize us prior. Turn from the rage. Turn from the jealousies and the bitterness and the greed. You see, there's a turning from this, and what, what all of it's characterized as is detestable idolatry. All of these things come from the fact that, you're, that you have another Savior and you've believed that. So have you ever watched Godzilla? Who's ever seen Godzilla? Two of you. Come on, that's not true. But okay, I got another hand. We've seen Godzilla. What's like the, whole, the thing with Godzilla? Well, he's angry. All the villagers are afraid of their lives. So they give them some beautiful woman, right, to eat. Right? And he's satisfied. He's, his anger is satisfied. Now, now Godzilla is not going to kill all them, and he might even protect them too. So every now and then they just find someone to just throw into the pit, and he eats them up. Right? But friends, do you know that you do exactly the same thing with your God? You'll abandon your kids. You'll leave your wife. You'll throw it on the altar. That's why we do this stuff. Because something else is so important to us. And no matter what it takes, we'll do it. Isn't that true? Oh, but friends, when God is our God, we don't need to do that anymore. We're difficult people. Right? We don't have to divorce them. We don't have to abandon them. We don't have to leave the church because someone stepped on my toe. Right? We can be new. We can be different because God is our God now and we're free. He never disappoints us. His grace is given to us. He's not angry Godzilla that's going to eat us. He forgave our sin for us at the cross for us. Right? There is no fear in love. That's our God. And that's who we have. There's a turning from and then there's a turning to. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That means, that means not that the gospel is preached to dead people, but people that the gospel was preached to, they're now dead. That's the reason why it was preached to them, right? Not so that those people would have life, right? For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according 
according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So we turn from something old to something new, and what we turn to is God and life. The new life transformation brings with it positive and negative spectators. Did you know that? Some people outside of Christ are going to ridicule you. That's what this says here. They mock you. Why aren't you doing this stuff with us anymore? That's what Scripture says. And we have to endure that painful rejection. But, but in this text, though, we're reminded of who we're looking to, what's in store for us. You know, when I came to faith in Christ, very many of my friends just went in the other direction and didn't talk to me anymore. It's not because I was being a jerk. To, sometimes we can be jerks, right, with our new faith, right? But, like, it wasn't because of that. It's just I was just so different and bizarre. And why? Why wouldn't you do this stuff with us anymore? You see, that happens, and that hurts, and that's hard. But you know what we have the comfort of? Of what we're turning to. We get life in the end. So we endure this painful rejection because we're reminded that the resurrection life has something in store for us. We're turning both to freedom and to life. That which we turn from is empty. It provides nothing. And that which we turn to provides everything, doesn't it? that we should be no longer slaves to sin. That's what the Bible, how the Bible describes this sort of life, slavery. Our old condition. And isn't that true? It doesn't work. It's bondage. It's heavy. So arm yourself with this attitude in Christ, that if you are in Christ, he is crucified, so are you. He is alive, and so are you. Amen? Let's pray. God, um, your word says and warns us, don't live like the pagans do. Enough time has passed that you've lived like that. Whether we've lived like that for 10 seconds or 10 years, it's too much time. It's a broken cistern that can hold no water. Oh God, help us believe that you provide life and victory. I pray, God, help us to love you and follow your will. Help us not to be distracted by our enemies and their temptations. Help us to believe that relationship with you has everything that we're looking for. Oh God, if we're Christians here this morning and something has been at our heels, whether it be fear, whether it be anxiety or depression or sin, help us to remember that we have died to it and we are alive and we need not continue anymore. Oh, thank you for that power. And if you don't know Christ, would you trust in him right now? Stop trusting in yourself. Put it down. Trust in Jesus and he'll work for you. He died for sinners like us. Oh, God, save me a sinner. I want your new life, and I trust that Jesus paid it for me. If that's you, friends, if you're leaning on Christ, you are saved. You don't have to spin in a circle or come forward or raise a hand or anything. You simply direct your trust to Christ. Oh, and come tell me if that's you. I, I want to pray for you and with you. God, we love you, and we thank you now as we 